0: Welcome, everyone, to a new season of our mentor podcast. I am uh, very excited to be joined today uh, by Sheena Howard. Uh, she is the founder of the Global love Led Leadership Movement, creator of the love Led Blueprint, primary care and mental health nurse, and professor uh, at Fleming College. Uh, Sheena holds a, a Bachelor of Nursing Science from Queens University School of Nursing and her Master's of Leadership Uh, specializing uh, in uh, health uh, from Royal Roads University. Sheena's thesis, Inspiring Positive Change in the Healthcare System Through Love-Led Leadership, was awarded with distinction and won the coveted Founders Award. Sheena is a transformative uh, nurse leader and coach uh, and has coached, mentored uh, nurses, physicians, healthcare professionals, and educators in this emerging leadership lens, and consulted on the operationalization of love-led love, love, love leadership in a variety of organizations. Uh, Sheena specializes in primary care and mental health of marginalized families and individuals, particularly trans-identified, queer, LGBTQ2S plus uh, people, and women, uh, youth and children with ADHD and mental illness. Uh, Sheena was the first RN, second assessor of four uh, gender affirmation surgery in Ontario, Canada. She is the co-chair of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario's uh, best practice guidelines for the care of the LGBTQ communities expert development panel. Sheena has been invited to speak internationally on issues related to LGBTQ plus healthcare nursing leadership, and primary care nursing. And I'm very excited to have you here with us, uh, Miss Sheena Howard. Uh,
1: thank you very much. It's really lovely to be here, Ali. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Um, so uh, let's get started with this. Um, so new season, season two, mm-hmm. very excited yes. to be starting with uh, having you here. Uh, and just like with all my other guests, we're going to kick this off with uh, how did you get started in nursing? What was the calling that brought you into the profession?
1: What was the calling? Well, before I do that, I just want to say I've been really looking forward to this because I have to admit, I I thought that you only interviewed nurses with PhDs. <laughs> 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 so <laughs> when you said I was on your list, I thought, whew,
0: <laughs> uh, I, my 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 list does have a lot of uh, doctoral prepared and yes. the, no, I have to go around my circles and people will that will actually answer my phone calls so that's <laughs> a, that's a lot of a lot of that is because who's answering my phone calls that is
1: <laughs> well I'm thrilled I'm really thrilled to be here so um I think the question was what got me started on my journey into nursing was that yes, the question? Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So I have to admit, there's uh, nobody in my family is a nurse um, at all. Um, but what happened was, was uh, in Ontario back in the '90s, we had to go to grade 13, and I had no idea what I wanted to be. And so my guidance counselor said, just go down to the library because this was pre-internet, and and said go look at the information pamphlets in the library about you know what you could do because it's my right. first halfway through my first semester we had to start applying to universities and my mom refused to allow me to apply to be a police officer oh. <laughs> not that not that I wanted to hold a gun I just thought helping people would be great <laughs> and <laughs> um, and so I picked up a pamphlet that uh, ex- talked about asked me asked the questions do you like people do you like to travel do you like to help people? Are you always the first to offer um, offer care and consideration to your friends? There was a whole bunch of questions. And I checked, yes, 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 yes. Opened up the pamphlet and they said, it said, have you considered nursing? Oh. And it, it was like the, I don't know what happened, but this massive light bulb went off over my head and I said, I want to be a nurse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, I
1: know, and so then after that, it was, uh, it was just, I, I, I applied uh, to university and got in, to my first choice. And it was really, really difficult. Uh, nursing school was incredibly intense. And um, I was so happy that I, when I was finished um, it was also intense because my preferred um A nursing lens or my preferred specialty was public health and primary care and we were actively discouraged from going into those areas because they said oh you'll lose your skills and oh you'll um you know nobody's going to you know want to hire you into acute care we didn't train you for that we trained you to do this and go into the hospital and um it was just my luck that um, I had ADHD. I have ADHD, and I went, well, whatever. <laughs> I'll, I'll figure it <laughs> out. <laughs> if, I, if I can't do it, I'll find a way. <laughs> so I was able to structure my placements into primary care and public health. And then uh, Wanted had some had a really amazing class um, that talked about Indigenous uh, communities in Canada and nursing in Indigenous communities, and I I, I, that was where my heart's calling was, and so I graduated school and um, sold everything in my apartment, packed up my little car, and drove across the country and moved out to Haida Gwaii. I took a job. Um, Haida Gwaii is a set of islands just off the northwest coast of British Columbia, close to Alaska to oh. work to work and live in an indigenous community there um, doing public health and primary care and it was um, I'd have to say to date is still my most favorite, job i've ever held it was such a wonderful experience that's beautiful,
0: that's beautiful. i mean we've yeah. uh, where i'm teaching right now uh we we just started the last couple of years we've had uh well not a complete last year we've
1: mm-hmm. had
0: an ambulatory care course where we've kind of it's a it's you know it's it's an extra course uh um it's an elective uh mm-hmm. that our students uh a select number of our students can take uh but it's it's just having that exposure of you know uh, taking them out of their comfort zone of saying acute care, acute care, acute care. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's such a different experience. And so many of, so many of the students uh, come back and say, "Uh, wow, it's such a different role. And it's such a, you know, it's, it's still rewarding, but it's, it's something they're not exposed to. I think we've, we've overdone it with like acute care definitely has a place in our role, but primary care and especially working with the indigenous uh, community. I think that's, that's, that's the beautiful part for me. I mean, that's yes. really
1: it's, and it's, it, yeah. And it's important in nursing schools to have that kind of exposure. We're not all the same people, you know, and in my way of thinking, um, while I would be really good in emergency care, because, you know, I'm good at an emergency, it would also, it, it's not my style. It's not my love. It's not my passion. And so why would I want to go and work in there and be unhappy and burn out quick, right? right. Where I could work in a place where I was doing something that I loved and enjoyed and would stay in the profession for a lot longer and wouldn't right. get as get as dissatisfied. So yeah, I was really blessed to really love my job. Um, and then I had kids and apparently that changes your life. I got married and <laughs> <laughs> well, I got married and had, and had a child. And, um, and so I just, we decided to move back home to my hometown. Um, and then that's when I got really Im- Im- immersed in primary care and mental health. And, right. uh, Yeah. And um, in I know that you teach a leadership course um, and one of the difficulties about being in primary care, similar to what Robin Cogan talked about um, in her interview with you about there's no um, there's no way to grow. In primary care, there's no um, Mm – because you generally report to the physician that you work with. And so in order for you to experience any leadership roles, you have to really think outside the box to be able to get – and, can, and experience or go into higher education to be able to access places where you could make a difference at a higher level.
0: Yeah, networking becomes really
1: important, right? Yes, really important, really important. And yeah, um, yeah and I swore I'd never go back to school. Never, ever, ever in a million years would I ever go back to school. And then
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> I made several of those uh, promises yes. or, or you- to myself.
1: Okay. Well, I'm glad it's not just me. Um, but then I, I decided, um, I, I got thinking that if I wanted to go any further in my career, um, in, a, in rather than horizontally, but upwards, that I probably needed a master's degree. And so I elected to go and get my master's degree in, uh, in leadership with a health specialization instead of nursing. Um, not that I was burned out of nursing. I just really wanted to do a deep dive into leadership. Mm-hmm. Very yeah.
0: cool. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, so um, I, I'm really intrigued. Uh, uh, so you are from Canada, uh, yes. you're practicing in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so how does how does this, uh, the component of going into primary care uh, work? Because I'm kind of intrigued about this because uh, like in the US, a lot of times, you know, nurses think that this is the only place that they can go work in is inside of a hospital. And some, some people don't really have the passion for that. They would mm-hmm. rather do something like ambulatory care. How does it work in Canada? Is Um, that the same issue or?
1: Well... Yes. Unfortunately, primary care um, in Ontario right now is the place that I'm most familiar with, but I do know that it does happen across the country um, in, in certain situations that um, primary care isn't seen as a specialty of nursing. It's seen as something that you go into when you're ready to retire because you, you work in a doctor's office, all you do is give needles um, and you you know support a few people with their diabetes and that's about it. <laughs> And so (laughs) you kind of fall into it or you fall... You fall in love with it and then you make your way into it. So if a doctor has a position that opens up in their office practice, that is the way that you slide into primary care. Certainly, there's very few nursing schools in Ontario that offer primary care placements because it's, it's seen as a place where you're not going to get to practice all your skills. However, as a primary care full scope primary care nurse, um, I do all kinds of things. I do well baby visits. I run the vaccine program. Um, I do psychotherapy with clients. Uh, smoking cessation, diabetes care, chronic disease management, case management, patient navigation, uh, well women visits, including STD testing, PAPs, well male visits, um, all, all kinds of things. Whatever you're interested in, help parents or moms learn to breastfeed, support them in their breastfeeding, you know, on like video conversations, video visits, telephone visits, there's lots of scope um, for nurses in primary care. So I don't know if that's the same in the United States, but does it, does it sound similar or?
0: Um, one of the things that uh, I, I think uh, we struggle with in the U S is uh, really, and, and and it's something that I'm seeing a little bit of change in is having more actual RNs in primary care. Uh, mm-hmm. We, uh, a lot of people, uh, physician offices default to medical assistants or licensed vocational nurses. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, So, um, so we are seeing a a small change right now. I know there's a couple of organizations, especially in Southern California uh, that are, um, that are expanding the RN hiring RNs in primary care. A lot of times it's sort of a back office. Like they do like triage phone triage. They do back office work and they do like management of the mm-hmm. office, mm-hmm. um, but not so much the one-on-one, like the stuff that you you're doing right now, uh, less of that. Uh, okay. and, and hopefully we're, we're looking at a, at a shift to using registered nurses with those patients and doing the kind of work that you're doing. I mean, they can, they can do it. They're just not utilized as much. And I think part of it has to do with, uh, costs, salaries, things like that, that yes. nurses are a little, little bit more expensive to use. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And primary care nurses expe- in, here in Ontario um, are definitely paid less than um, hospital nurses, which oh, wow. is... Which is one of the things I've been advocating for is equitable um, pay for um, for nurses in primary care. Um, you, you, it's not unusual to see primary care nurses who've been working for quite a number of years actually getting less than a starting a nurse a nurse who's just graduated who's starting to work in the hospital.
0: I have students that make more than I do, so uh, okay. I know how, I know <laughs> so, how that feels. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think that sort of extends into um, the way that um, the. We, that the profession, primary care nurse profession, has often been seen as a help meet to a physician. As right. opposed to an independent practitioner who's regulated, who has a scope, who knows right. their business, who knows what they what they need to do, so and is there for the patient as opposed to the physician. So, trying to change that um, that method, that methodology, and that that discourse has been one of the things that we've been working towards. Uh, and getting I think, there. I think, oh. I think
0: the U.S. is suffering, and I think most of the most most of the world suffers from that that same concept that the nurse is working for the physician and Mm -hmm. um, and and it is something I know we're working on the U.S. that it's not it's a different scope of practice
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. part of it
0: has to do with do physicians know the nursing scope of practice and I think that's one thing that I think we've we've ran into uh, quite a bit is like The physicians have been, you know, not, not, I don't want to say to their fault uh, or that 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 that's their fault, but I I think the way the culture of healthcare has been and what the physicians are taught in school, how they're treated in, at facilities, it's been that thing of, um, you know, the nurses work for you and not, Mm. they are an independent uh, um, practice. uh, That's a team member, right? They're your colleagues. They are not there to take your orders and, and obey your orders and whatever else. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so, yeah, I have... 100%. This, we, we can go off on, a, on, <laughs> on this tangent for a while. So, yes. yeah, I, I think it's something that we are, we're also hoping. And it's one of the things that actually, even for our nurse practitioners in the U.S., half mm-hmm. of the states in the U.S. Uh, don't have... In the, our nurse practitioners do not have independent their um, full scope of practice. Uh, and they are attached to... Uh, they have to be attached to a physician. And like, for example, in California, they can't own their own clinic. They have to, they can only like, um, uh, I think it's, they can only have 49% ownership of a healthcare facility. Also, okay. uh, things like that, that, um, that um, there's, you know, new, new bills going everywhere. I think California is in the right path in uh, um, becoming a, a, a state that has a, a they're going to eventually have a full scope of practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're hoping that happens. But like I said, half the states in the U.S. do not, uh, gardeners that's practitioners do not have full scope of practice. Uh, that's They have to be. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, and and the exciting thing for RNs in Ontario is that um the legislation has just been changed to allow for RN prescribing. So not even nurse like so nurse practitioners have their own um prescription capabilities that they do their prescribing, right. but then so for example somebody like me have taking a had taking an extra pres- prescribing course which would be really involved and in, in depth um would be able to prescribe basic medications for basic wow. For basic treatments for um, urticaria or otitis media or what have you, uh, you know, a pink eye, that kind of thing.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yes. Yeah. And it really meeting the patients where they're at, because so much of what I do is that work with families and with people that are that need to be seen in, in not in an emergency room, um, but in our offices. So. I'm
0: very envious of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Uh, but it makes sense. It makes sense for some of the routine stuff that we mm-hmm. we don't need to have a physician. And physicians do have their own specialty. There's a reason that they're that's, there. That's uh, right. So that, I, that they, you know, we we spend so much energy and money on them seeing the common colds and flus and things like that, where yes. a nurse would be just as capable of doing. But wow, yes. that's that's
1: great. And in yeah. some cases, are the, is the best choice. For that yeah. particular person, the one that, um, you know, at least in the practice that I work in, um, each of the nurses have their own um, specialties, the people that they enjoy, you know, more, not more confident, but that's just where they really enjoy being. That's their, that's, that's their lane. That's and then right. and, and the physician that I work with will say, you can see me, except you are going to get better care seeing one of my nurses who specializes in working with babies or working with youth. Um, and I'll be involved in your care as the team, but this will be your contact person, which I think is a really good recognition and an important recognition of, of nurses role and scope.
0: That's so much of a higher level thinking than, um, I don't want to say then the U.S., but then the U.S.
1: <laughs> well, it's here in Canada, too. There are some, it, we, I do get some looks when I say I'm a full-scope primary care nurse and they kind of look at me and, um, and there are some physicians that still believe that that nurses are hired because they hire you, you work for them to make it, them see more patients faster as opposed to, I'm hiring you for your skills in order to offer my patients this amazing yeah. skill set. Yeah. Did
0: they study in the U.S.?
1: No, <laughs> <laughs> no. I might
0: have. We might have to take the blame for that.
1: Um, but okay. yeah,
0: that's amazing. That really is amazing. The, uh, but having that, having that uh, uh, awareness that there is uh, other specialists that can do a better job, and I think it's more cost effective, right? It is a more cost effective method when we talk about um, when we talk about this. But, you know, uh, in the U.S., we have a lot of, uh, you know, like um, lobbyists for the for the physician groups. And it's very insurance and reimbursement based and um, and. you're, you guys work on a different system. So I think that has a lot to do with it.
1: Yes, I think so. I think so, too. And um, there's still some fee-for-service docs uh, right. around around for sure. But when you look at um, what we've been able to do inside our practice by maximizing the scope of the nurses in in our pri- in our the primary care practice, we've been able to reduce our um, CTAS four and five visits to the emergency room for our patient set. So that oh. your colds, your, you know, all the like small things, um, we've been able to to reduce that, but also reduce our hospital readmission rates, wow. uh, which is fantastic. And in terms of cost savings, it's if you multiplied that by all of the – there's over – I can't remember, 5,000 primary care nurses in Ontario now. I, I'm not 100% sure of the number, but if you were able to multiply that and, and apply those principles to every practice, you would see right. such a reduction. And then we could redistribute some of those funds into places that are better – that need the help like mental health and right. children's health and that kind of stuff yeah.
0: and if you think about it, even if it was a one patient per uh per one of those nurses that was right. that was that reduced the readmission just the readmission rate if you just took that yes. one uh one item mm-hmm. uh, the, the cost savings would be would be enormous so oh, yes. uh, wow that's amazing yeah. Wow. Well, very very impressed I might be moving to Canada after all. Um so.
1: you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Trent University in Peterborough would love to have you in their nursing thank program. You. Thank mm-hmm. you, thank
0: you. Uh, so this is fantastic. Uh so um so I want to kind of I, w- I want to definitely want to touch on some of the other you you're doing so much and it's amazing. Uh I definitely want to touch on uh, how did you get so you are uh the founder for uh this um Uh, global love-led leadership movement yes
1: Uh,
0: and uh, I love your website by the way very colorful and happy uh, website Uh, very informative Um, uh, so how did this come about uh, and uh, and um, if you can just tell us a little bit about uh, what it is about uh, altogether.
1: sure sure so um hmm which is part to start with first. Okay. I'll tell you how I, it was, it came about. So I did my master's degree in, in leadership. And prior to that, um, Just before I got accepted, I was terminated without cause from uh, a position, from a job. And that was incredibly devastating to me. Um, Although I can't talk too much about it, what I can say is is that there wasn't any problem with my clinical skills or anything. I'm not 100% sure why I was terminated, but I was. And when I went into my leadership program, I we had to really examine ourselves as leaders and then our impacts on engaging other people, how we engaged in system transformation. And I had to take a really hard look at how I led and what my leadership style was. And what I came to was that I had spent the great deal of my life as somebody who's lived with ADHD and anxiety and also um, been an out lesbian woman. There's lots of um, places where you're told you can't do things or you're told that you're too different and so and also i've been accused of being really happy and optimistic <laughs> and friendly and caring and kind and all these things and of course i accept the blame for all of that because i am um but what you end up learning is that you're different and unusual and you need to do it in a different way and so you can either internalize that and think that you're bad or you can externalize it and think that they're bad there's something else wrong with them and so what i learned was a really healthy dose of of um How to put this? Um, Just ask. Don't ask for permission. Ask for forgiveness later. (laughs) And I also learned that um, to advocate rather than stay in inquiry. So, for for any length of time, I would just push back instead of instead of taking the time to listen. And really, that's where my heart's home is. And we had to come up with our own personal leadership lens for one of our uh, research classes. And I was looking at all of the different leadership lenses. So servant leadership, values-based leadership, distributive leadership, on on, and on and on, transformative leadership. And they all danced around this topic of, of love you know, they would even say things like, you know, you have to love your people or love is the source of power and all this, but they, they stopped short of saying that they lead from a place of love, love of humans, love of, of caring, any of that. And I just had this light bulb moment and I thought I'm a love led leader. It just came to my head. And then what I chose to do was, it was direct my thesis work in developing a definition and characteristics, and then afterwards, a blueprint, a framework to be able to support people to actualize love-led leadership. So the definition um, that I that I utilized for my thesis or that I researched and came up with was that it's a philosophy in um, gauging, engaging in leadership practices that um, with based on the concern for others and um, to promote a strong affection between people and um, that gives rise to others' well-being and the dedication and maintenance of their dignity. So yeah. pretty much nursing in a nutshell, I think, but also the kind of leadership that's needed now more than ever. Right. And when you look at the research around what leadership actions actually make a difference, the characteristics that I that I came up with or that I could see that would be reflective of love led leaders are authenticity, passion, humility, accountability, and empathy. Did I say vulnerability? I think I did. Anyways, there's six of them. Nice. <laughs> these these characteristics that that love led leaders um, engage in in order to practice it. So that's where it came from, and I wanted to share it. I felt like every time I explained it to people, there was a lot of light bulbs that went on, like really? "Oh, that's me," or "Oh, I totally agree with you," or "Oh, I would never tell anybody that I did that because <laughs> you don't say you love your patients." <laughs> totally now, no,
0: no, I so when I first when I when I first looked at your website uh, and it said the love led leadership, um, do you um, just uh, did have you gotten? anyone that you've spoken to uh, or you've, you know, at a, at a conference or anything you've done around the topic that have been uncomfortable with the word love, using love in their leadership. I'm, I'm putting air quotes up for people because people can't see this uh, with the word love around it. Cause I think the word love makes people or we've made people feel perhaps uncomfortable with that word and how we use it just because I think we've uh, we've sterilized so much of what we do. Just the word "love" is uh, is a word that maybe pe- makes people uncomfortable, or perhaps they think they take something away from them if they think they, you know, part of their description is love. So how how did you uh, did you ever get a feedback like that? Or uh, yeah,
1: for sure, for sure. People, the feedback that I've gotten has been um, that's really risky. Yeah. It's really risky to say. And I agree with them. I yeah. agree with them. You know, we have these depersonalized, dehumanized policies and procedures that um not even in just in healthcare, but in education, in um in businesses that say that we that, that take the humanity and and, and right. the dignity and well-being out of our exist out, out, out of our practices. Right. And for a really small number of people, like meaning that people that would go against that kind of uh belief or people that wouldn't act as a love-led leader would because love-led leadership isn't about isn't a license to abuse people or harm people but they but to be a but to say that is a big risk and so yeah people have said that um and i was asked in my defense um do you think you need to water down the term and call it oh. com- compassionate leadership and i said no <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think so because I think it's the time to name it. I think it's the right. time to call it what it is, and that many of us um, are working in this way where we come from this place of deep caring and wanting to maintain other people's dignity through all of our interactions, and that is the essence of agape love, which is which is sort of the agape love is the Greek word for um, selfless love. Right, that you do it for the love of a human, um, right. love of humankind, as opposed to the romantic love, which is right. what we've come to know and understand. And but I, and mo- I think that's
0: what's probably making people uncomfortable. They're not with with the term, the terminology, and you know, it's with a lot of things that are going on right now. Like I'm using a lot of words now in my courses that are making my students sometimes uncomfortable. And actually, I had a um, a couple of students actually like talk to me later and said. Uh, they weren't sure how to react to it. Like I've used words like recently with, you know, around the Black Lives Movement matters that's happening. With right. I'm using the word racism and systemic racism and things like that in my in mm-hmm. my coursework now that I didn't necessarily use before. And I've just kind of pushed myself because I was like, should I use it? Should I not use it? And and over the summer, I'm like, you know what? I'm using this verbiage because yes. this is what we call it. And same thing with the word. And the reason I brought the question of are people uncomfortable with that word is because I can, in my head, I can just imagine uh, one of the CEOs or uh, nurse executives using that word. And I know I've had a nurse executive that I think was the perfect example of a love led leadership, but I don't think that verbiage would ever be in her, uh, in her, you know, dialogue. Um,
1: Right. And, and the experience that I've, I've seen, um, executives, nurses, nurse executives, leaders, physicians, um, have when they label themselves or they identify publicly with being a love led leader is just one of relief because there's finally a place where they can hang their hat. Yeah. There's there's words that they can say that that allows them to stay in their vocation and stay with their passion um in their vocation and it and it's just it it aligns with how they were already thinking they just never had the words to describe it and those are the people that I that I'm. Targeting um, in order to be able to share it with them. Because oh. I think what once my experience was that once I was able to do that, I became a more effective leader and a more effective nurse. Um, it kept me grounded and engaged. And when we choose, who else is going to use the words if we don't, right? right. In our in our classrooms, you know, as leaders in classrooms or leaders in our organizations. Um, and the interesting piece about staying in inquiry longer than advocacy is that I've learned a lot about people who I generally would have othered, who would be sometimes some of the ones saying, why do we need to include LGBTQ people here? What do you mean we're not a safe place to go? What do you mean there's some you know diversity and equity issues here? <laughs> right?" I would have dif- Love-led leadership has given me the opportunity to, st- to, st- to st- take a step back and look at what they value imagine what they value and then approach them from that lens. So yeah. it's actually made um, my relationships or my abilities to engage in difficult relationships much better. Yeah,
0: yeah that's, that's amazing. amazing. I mean, I mean, being able to, uh, and that's the, that's the piece I think uh, I'm connecting the most to is that you're giving, uh, you're making it okay for people to use the verbiage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're giving them ability to, uh, say, this is the type of leader I am. And I think that's, uh, that's fantastic. And giving, because like the definition that you, that you gave and the, and the uh, values that fall under that are stuff that mm-hmm. we use all the time. Is uh, yes. the, is the language we're already speaking, but the overall arching to put it in one basket and naming that basket for them, I think is, uh, is very valuable. Thank so that's you. amazing. That's amazing. That's, that's fantastic. Um.
1: And the, um, the, the blueprint, um, that I've developed, yeah, it's the, um, the be love led blueprint. So L O V E L E D. Um, and so L is listen, O is observe, V is values. So like a values guess at, um, what's going on for the person. Um, E is express. So, uh, telling them what you've heard, what you've observed and what you're guessing that their values are associated with that. Um, and then listening, then repeating the process um, after you've expressed, in order to um, hear what the, what they have to say based on what you've said. And then lead is is learn, so learning back from them what they've ex- what they've told you. Um, explore, so explore possibilities, explore solutions, explore um, out of the box thinking, and then decide which what's the direction we're going to go after we've created shared meaning and and shared connection. That's great. That's so great. use yeah. So you can use that um, when you're making decisions at at the bedside, in the boardrooms in healthcare, um, in education, in classrooms, one on one in conversation, or in big group meetings. Right. Yeah. I found it really valuable as a tool.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Um, and um, and this is great. And actually, I have uh, this. Inf- some of, a lot of this information actually is on your website. And I yes. want to make sure. Uh, people listening to us right now, uh, the links to your website are on my. Website, so we made that available. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of this, uh, uh, when we wrap this up, we'll talk about your website again. Make That's sure true. everybody uh, has an opportunity <laughs> to go on there and take a look. And, have, and the uh, courses, <laughs>
1: and if they want to take courses,
0: them. Yes, we mm-hmm. do have courses that they can definitely uh, engage in. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I want to little transition a little bit to some of the sure. other work that you're doing uh, with the LGBTQ. Plus, community and uh, policy work and things like that. Can you talk to a little, a little bit about the work that you're doing in, in Ontario right now?
1: Sure. So um, right now I'm um, the um, co-chair of an expert panel um, for the RNAO, Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, which is the um, the nurse advocacy arm uh, branch. I don't want to call it a branch, but uh, organization that supports nurses, speaks out for nurses in health um, care, as opposed to our regulatory college, of course, which... Speaks up for patients, protects patients. Um, And they are developing a best practice guideline for the care of the LGBTQ2S. I-plus communities here in Ontario, Um, although the BPGs um, uh, from the RNAO have been used globally, so across the world and in many different countries. And so the exciting part is that the opportunities for this BPG to be able to provide guidance to all healthcare professionals, not just nurses, about the community uh, is is phenomenal. So I'm really excited about that. It has the potential to change um, healthcare practices in um, primary care, but also into to um, healthcare and mental health organizations. Um, done some advocacy work around, um, around uh, getting ensuring that the, um, the government in Ontario funds gender um, aff- affirmation surgeries for trans folks, uh, for uh, to- top surgery for trans men uh, and bottom surgeries, um, which is really exciting, meaning that they don't have to pay for it anymore which um, are up to and including I think it was three years ago three or four years ago maybe five now um, everybody had to pay some people had to go to the states some people wow. had to go to Quebec um, in order to be able to have the surgeries and it was hugely expensive cost prohibitive and also um, contributed to um, high suicide uh, rates um, of of the um, in the trans community wow. Um And also advocating for the care for trans folks and transitions to be grounded and housed in primary care, as opposed to going to have to see an endocrinologist. So that the access was available in the in the towns in which um, they li- folks live and work. So here in our community, um, we in Peterborough, which is sort of like central Ontario-ish, um, we saw over 400 in our practice over 400 trans folks um, from as far away as southern Ontario, like Windsor area near um, the border of the states, all the way up into northern Ontario. Wow, that's um, amazing. And. So People travel for, from huge, huge, huge places. Um, in order for that to be accessible, um, we advocated for, uh, supported, and advocated for RNs uh, to be second assessors in the um, in the um, gender affirmation application and assessment. So that was really exciting. So what that meant is it opened up even more access um, for folks to be able to have a really good assessment done, and then be able to have nurses um, be able to add their signature as as qualified service qualified healthcare providers to be able to support their application for for funds for the surgery.
0: That's that's so, fantastic. Yeah. Um yeah. so um now now I'm curious about the RN role uh, in this mm. whole process because I think that that that's such, that's so important just because again with that ac- accessibility and support system that that puts mm-hmm. into place. Now does this uh, so after surgery do, does do the do RN still have a role that they play other than routine uh, checkups and things like that, or uh, what kind, how does that work? How does that support system work?
1: So it depends on on which community you live in. Some people have trans-specific clinics where folks can go post-surgery to be able to get support and um, continue to, if they're on um, hormones, that they can continue to be followed and monitored. And um, ideally, an RN scope would be to continue um, to, to do... Um, like post-surgical assessments you know, for infections and all of those things that you would do after any surgery, you'd keep your eye on that. But it requires um, a lot of, ex- not a lot of experience, but enough experience with uh, culturally sensitive care um, of trans individuals to be able to um, support them post-surgery. Um, so, you know, in, in a nurse's role, being able to sh- to, to learn about um, culturally competent care of trans individuals. that's really important. But then afterwards, they you you've supported them through this this life transition and then they become, a patient who simply needs primary care (laughs) or simply needs to be engaged in the system. Right. right? So, so that is making sure that their prescriptions are up to date, their blood works up to date, all of those things. And then also being able to provide excellent preventative care specifically for trans folks who have had um, gender affirming surgery. So what I mean by that is if we have um, a woman who has had gender affirming surgery, and still has a prostate then we need to be able to make sure that they're still getting those markers those 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 checks, checks done right. whatever body parts we have we have to make sure we're still I checking for them <laughs> right absolutely yes and oftentimes the rn is in that role of advocacy making sure that those checks are still happening
0: that's amazing because does, i think that's, that that's, that's i think that's one of the things i think i w- i've uh, we struggle. I don't want to say we struggle, or I've I've observed. I'm going to say I've observed is uh, we're not doing enough of uh, the awareness uh, in in the community of taking care of. Uh, trans folks, and we're not doing enough mm-hmm. um, cultural sensitivity or uh, that kind of education with our healthcare providers in general—not just nurses, but in general. Yes. Um, so, and I, I would agree. Yeah, oh, and I think that's amazing work that you've you've been able to do so much and um, added this additional role uh, for nurses to be able to step in and lead. Um, yeah. I think you know, that's and amazing.
1: if you think about the you know, the actual um. Like the the time between when a when a trans person identifies as trans and when they actually get support from the medical community, if it's a if it's a long period of time, they're at their highest risk of suicidality. And you can make a huge difference in the life of somebody if you're able to open the doors really quickly. Right.
0: Um, so yeah, so thank you for uh sharing that piece because the in my so I do primarily veterans research and I think that's the biggest and we do have a large uh suicide rate in the veteran community and mm-hmm. that transition period between a veteran coming out of the military and going and um um going into the civilian community, that transition period or reintegration is very difficult. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where we're seeing a lot of uh, veteran suicide occur is because that transition isn't necessarily facilitated or the support system doesn't exist. So as you're talking about this, that's what I'm in the back of my brain. I'm like, yeah, this is happening with other communities. Mm -hmm. Although it's not a it's not this uh, uh, type of transition for them. Uh, it is yes. a transition, a life transition. That's and, right. Uh, it's, a, it's a different culture. It's different. Uh, there's just so much change happening. If the support system doesn't exist, uh, I think it becomes that much more problematic. And I think that's yes. that's that's key. That's
1: key. I agree with you. And if the gatekeepers to to care or the gatekeepers to support are saying, "I don't know what to do with you." I don't right. know I've never seen you this, it, whatever before, right. or I've never seen this, this problem or this issue. I don't know what to do. I'll just, oh, you got to go find somebody else. That yeah. is such a, a slap in the face. And, and um, in my opinion, such poor care
0: right uh and <laughs> no. and actually and i i'm again relating to yes. <laughs> relating to this on a whole mm-hmm. different level i uh so i have uh i have uh ptsd from a from a military experience okay. um so uh for me i did go and seek and i've never gone to our uh veterans affairs health system to because uh my uh ptsd is related to i spent about a month doing a search and recovery for a commercial airliner that cra- crashed mm. uh back in the day uh a Korean airliner that crashed in Guam many years ago. Uh, And I was part of the team that went, and we did search and recovery in the middle of a jungle for about a month. So my PTSD is related to that, but it does get uh, uh, – I do have to once in a while put myself – and check and you know, maybe even seek therapy uh, because um, because of life stressors, some of the anxiety that was related to that, I can like that. feel those coming back up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did. Well, the first time I went and I tried to see a, a therapist around it, uh, he literally said, oh, maybe you should go to the V.A., I'm like, well, I'm already in your office. Yes. I made an appointment a month ago. I'm in yes. your office. We're talking. Yes. This is not combat related. This no. is not anything like that. I'm like, and do you know how hard tra- I had to work
1: to get here and say tra- it out loud?
0: It's a traumatic experience I had to deal with. And now you're telling me. I should go to the VA and I'm like, well, I'm like, let's just talk. Can we just talk about this? And so, yes, yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm relating my own experiences with what you're saying, but it's true. Mm-hmm. It's it is like when people don't know what to do with you or don't have the, they don't feel comfortable. They're like, Oh, maybe this other person can help. And I'm like, do you know what I had to go through to get to this point that I'm talking to you? I'm yes. sharing this mm-hmm. very uncomfortable for me. Uh, this is not. So yeah, I, I yeah, I agree. It's I think so it's painful. We do need to definitely do a better job. Yeah. Uh, how is the mental health system in Canada? Because I can tell you in the U.S. where we don't do a great job at it.
1: So, I'd say it's twofold. It's if you have private coverage. So in 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 Canada, in Ontario, anyways, um, it psychotherapy isn't covered under our Ontario health insurance. So that's something that you have to, um, not, not, not long-term it's not covered. I'll just qualify that a little bit. Um, if you have private coverage, you can go, you can go and get that yourself. So through your own, um, insurance benefits through work, if you are linked to a family doctor who has access to mental health support, they can refer you, but it's going to take a long time. Wow to get in Um, and so it is a it's a system of if you're in the system it works really well but if you're not in the system it doesn't work well at all and it depends on where you are in the country if you're in northern parts of the country we don't have very, it's very difficult to get sustained, adequate, um, culturally sensitive programming and mental health support. If you live in Toronto or Vancouver, you've got your choice, all kinds of choices, right? If you happen to speak, um, if you happen to come from um, cultures where um, maybe you you would want to have your own language heard Mm -hmm. and spoken to you, that puts an even bigger barrier in between. So we're doing it, but not quickly enough. And it's, it's great for some people, but not great for others, which I would say um, there's a lot of education and support, uh, education and understanding and stigma redu- reduction, but not a lot of backup for how once you realize, oh, hey, guess what? <laughs> I need help. How do I get it? Um, it's it's very hit and miss depending on where you're from. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. And it's like that. Is it like that or is it?
0: Uh, in the US,
1: yeah, in the US, mm-hmm. uh, I think
0: in the in the US, uh, I think what we, sh- yeah, I mean, access is definitely uh, uh, an issue. There's just mm-hmm. not enough providers, uh, uh, you know, and then some. Uh, a lot of providers specialize. Um, so, for example, uh, uh, not a lot of providers out there that uh, work with children. Um, so that becomes, that becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with reimbursements and insurance and things like that. Um, a lot of insurance companies put like a limit of how many sessions you're able to, um, uh, to go to, like, you know, like, okay, you have 10 sessions for the year, so you better get better by then or, or I don't know. So I don't know how that <laughs> yeah. quite works because okay. usually you go through 10 sessions within a few months because if yes. it's it. Uh, within like two or three months. And if you're not better, uh, then you start having to, you're asked to come out of pocket. Uh, you know, then, yeah. then there's the copays and things like that. So there's a lot of barriers. Mm-hmm. And then from an institutional perspective, uh, uh the U S closed down a lot of, um, hospitals for voluntary, uh, not for mandate man- i mean mandatory okay. um um admissions for mental health issues is a is a, is a problem mm-hmm. uh we do have you know not enough beds for the number of people that need to be um institutionalized even for Mm -hmm. for like a 72-hour hold or anything like that even a 24-hour hold uh, becomes problematic um but um but anything long term we definitely don't have the proper access and that leads to a lot of things like uh, homelessness loss of job uh, and it's just uh, so yeah it's definitely definitely a problem in the u.s and I don't, I don't see it getting better anytime soon.
1: No. And same here, not enough beds, not enough long-term support, um, right. treatment centers, addiction treatment centers and things like that. Same, yeah. same issue. Um, and the, there's a lot of walking wounded folks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. that um, could be, could be seen the the one bright light, at least from my perspective as a nurse is that um the Ontario the College of Nurses of Ontario um fought and the RNAO fought really hard to keep psychotherapy as a nursing practice so that we didn't need a physician's order to be able to engage inst, in um initiate and continue with the practice of psychotherapy. So Again, amazing Yes, which is, which is great. And that's just not, a, I don't think there's not enough nurses yet in private practice, um, but it's, I'm, I'm hoping that it's going to get there because that, inc- that would increase more access for lots of different folks.
0: And I think that, I think, I think that's the biggest issue is access. Like by the time you get into, like uh, uh, we had uh, uh, I, I've known people in the past who've tried to seek a uh, seek assistance uh they didn't qualify for um uh, for (laughs) i want to say like a a mandatory admission right Mm. Uh, they wanted to like self-admit because they knew they are not getting better and they just needed that inpatient style care um and uh like i think california has maybe one maybe two like in the whole state that are that are voluntary and obviously the beds are not that many um, so most of the facilities i think in the us are involuntary admissions but by, the, by then it's kind of it's late yes. uh, in the game when people know they're they're going down a path that is going to lead to an involuntary admission if we can uh, hit that like early on would be that much better uh, so i think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that's um, that's um, it's unfortunate it's yeah.
1: unfortunate oh incredibly unfortunate missing a huge ability to activate um, nursing roles, right in in being able to support those kinds of initiatives to to, to get broader and bigger and more sustainable. Is somebody playing the flute?
0: <laughs> yes, that's my that's my daughter in the background. Okay. I just muted myself. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's beautiful. It's great. It's great. It's a live recording and it's COVID.
0: It's COVID. This is COVID podcast.
1: 100%. Yeah. Yeah. One of my nursing colleagues said, it's COVID, man. Like, what are we supposed to do? Just do what we need to do.
0: And I never know when it's going to happen, so I can't schedule around it. So it just
1: happens. Right. Right. Uh,
0: Yeah. It's her class. I can't do it. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. Uh so before uh before we finish uh finish off our our, our, our talk and it's okay. it's been great um. Anything you want to add? I know there's courses that you offer through through uh through your site. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, anything else you want to cover with us?
1: Sure. So I, if your listeners or anybody really is interested in learning a little bit more about love led leadership, they can certainly check out my website. It's SheenaHoward.com. Um. And if you're interested in the courses, uh, there's one on the on- the only one in the world in love led leadership, <laughs> and then there's also a, a companion course called uh, the Be Love Led Blueprint. Print course And that one, they're, they're perfect to get together because you learn, you do the theory and the practice, but then also um, get the hands on tools to be able to negotiate and how to how to utilize love led leadership in, in your own personal, personal leadership, but also in your professional leadership. Um, there's also the free Facebook group, the, the, uh, love led leadership Facebook group, um, which is, uh, open. And then we also have, uh, the love led leadership lab, which is a private members only group where we dig really deep into love led leadership. Um, we do coaching, um, I do coach and mentorship with the group, um, every other week doing live coaching calls and, and we get to, to, um, get our hands, um, engaged in some love practicing some love led leadership, uh, Practices, for lack of a better word, uh, and people have found that really great because they're able to um, come with their leadership wins or leadership challenges and have a love-led lens on, and eyes on that as a collective, collective whole, and be able to have access to a coach uh, twice a month. So there's also that, and that is um, that website is, is portal um, dot So that's where you can access the course. The courses. Uh, and
0: you, and that that is. Um, uh a link I have on my website. So yes. if anybody's interested, they can just mm-hmm. definitely uh, connect with you along with your social media links. Uh, mm-hmm. That is also available on our website.
1: Yes. Um thank So you, Ali. Thank, Sheena, you. thank you so, much. <laughs> thank
0: uh, you so uh, much. I greatly appreciate you being on the show. Uh, uh, again, uh, first episode of season two, uh, loved our conversation and thank you thank for, you. for sharing your experience and, uh, I learned a lot. I learned, I definitely learned a lot. Great. Um, thank so, you so much.
1: And a um, big shout out to your students. Thank <laughs> you. they've gotten thank to the end of this hour. <laughs> I'm, excited. <laughs> I'm excited to hear their, uh, their feedback and their assignments too. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like, a, you know, uh, like I mentioned, I use some of these uh, podcasts and uh, I think it's important for our students to, or actually for, you know, nursing period uh, to hear from, um, from the different individuals like yourselves who are doing incredible work uh, and get a better understanding of what, what nursing is about, uh, and now internationally. I
1: think, I, think yeah. I think you're
0: my first international uh, guest right. also. Yeah. Wow. So many firsts. <laughs> <Woo-hoo>. <laughs>
1: yay, yay, international guests. Yes, yes. <laughs> Sometimes we don't feel that international being, um, right. what is it that the Raptors saying is, north above everything? We don't feel uh-huh. that. <laughs> We don't feel that international, but I suppose we are. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have been listening to uh, my incredible guest, uh, Sheena Howard, and uh, uh, with me uh, on the RN Mentor Podcast. Have a great rest of your uh, week, and I look forward to uh, connecting with you again next time. Thank you so much, and have a great one. You've been listening to The RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayip.com. That's www.aliartayip.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.